The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, AMC takes another billion dollars from the shorts, although stocks are below the opening price. An explanation of the meme trade resurgence is coming up next. Apple gets a rare downgrade to sell this morning. We're going to tell you what's behind that call in just a moment. And finally, a warning from Microsoft on a new hack. The latest on the group behind solar winds this hour, John. Yeah, we're also focusing on building the future this morning. CEO of Autodesk is going to join us this hour as earnings there show an inflection point. And the company reports most countries at or above pre-COVID levels for them. That's a promising sign for the pipeline to recovery. We're also going to talk about how Apple stores built the future of physical retail 20 years after the first ones launched and how shopping for tech has never been the same. And we'll touch on the week's wild ride for Bitcoin as well as institutional investors and crypto bulls factor in this environment. D. Well, John, speaking of building the future, thematic tech investing, we've talked a lot about it here, think clean energy, AI cloud, next generation tech, that has been a very hot trade over the pandemic. But this morning, Bob Pisani, a warning from Morningstar on the dangers of this kind of investing. Yeah, very much a warning here. Everybody loves thematic tech investing, clean energy, cybersecurity, electric vehicles, esports, robotics, cloud computing, all exploding in popularity. But watch out. Morningstar's warning the majority of these funds do. Bob, I think we're going to get we're going to get your mic on. So, guys, let's continue this theme while Bob gets ready. You know, this is prime for the ARK investment thesis, right? High growth high returns in the longer run. And we've certainly seen seen an easing of that trade, at least this year, even though it was so hot last year. And it's so interesting to note, though, over the last few weeks or so, Kathy Wood and ARK have been doubling down on some of their trades and even introducing new ones that fit into this thematic tech. And I know Bob is going to tell us that if you look at history, and we'll come back to you here, Bob, if you look at history, this may not necessarily pay off, right? We'll let you continue here. Hold the prompter back. Yeah, the important thing is, you know, everybody loves thematic investing and what's going on with that. Thematic tech investing did very, very well. Remember, esports, robotics, cloud computing, all exploding in popularity. But Warningstar is warning here. The majority of these funds do not outperform the markets. They have very high fees. They have high failure rates. And they run the risk of too much concentration. While thematic tech investing did very well during 2020, the record is much poorer over longer periods of time. Morningstar found that over the past 10 years, 30% of thematic funds closed due to poor performance. 34% underperformed the market and only 36% outperformed. This, by the way, is in a 10-year bull market. So why the underperformance? Thematic investing, by its nature, is prone to investors chasing hot themes that go in and out of popularity. They also have very high fees that eat into the returns investors get. Remember, you can invest in an S&P 500 index fund for almost nothing right now. Morningstar also noted 
that a small number of actively managed funds have accumulated very large positions in many small cap stocks, particularly Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund. They have very large positions. Take a look here in companies like Stratasys and LendingTree, for example. This concentrated ownership means that the stock prices may be subject to the whims of investors in the fund. Investors start pulling out. The stocks are in trouble. So what's the takeaway of all this? Thematic investing, it's fun. It's easy to understand. If you like the theme, but you don't have the resources to investigate individual companies, thematic investing makes a lot of sense. But Morningstar's report is saying, don't kid yourself. You've not found the secret of stock market wealth. They ask, as timely as it may seem now, some of the themes are going to age very poorly. For example, ask yourself, investors ask yourself, will that work from home ETF still be relevant in three years time? It's a very good question and a good reminder about the long term effect of owning these funds. Guys, back to you. Very good point, Bob. And it seems to me, in tech at least, themes don't win, platforms and innovation do. And part of the problem is, as soon as some idea becomes buzzy, open source or cloud or whatever, companies chase that. They start defining themselves in that way, whether or not they have true innovation or defensible moats in that space. And so investors really need to be able to distinguish between who's leading, who's following, who has a defensible position versus who doesn't. Yeah. And part of the problem is, so for example, even say cloud computing, you have to have what's going to happen is there's going to be a small group of people that are really big in the cloud ultimately. But there's a lot of small companies out there that are vying for some part of that money. A lot of investors say, "Okay, I'll buy an ETF that's going to hold it. But a lot of these companies don't make money, won't make money for three, four or five years. Long term investors are hoping a small group will make money later on. Most of them don't. So you're taking a bet on what companies are going to survive, number one. And you're taking a bet on what sectors we may find that a lot of these sectors, you know, uh, social investing, for example, ultimately kind of dies down so that you're making a lot of bets on companies and individual sectors. This is why index investors say, don't worry about it. Own the broad market. There's some argument for looking at that way of investing. Yeah, there is, Bob. But, you know, some people say this time could be different. It's a bit of a dangerous argument. But uh, Kathy Wood, back in April, she did note, I thought this was interesting, in a tweet, she said that today's tech innovation dwarfs that of the late 1800s early 1900s as a basis behind her thesis. We'll see how that all plays out. Bob Bassani, thank you. Uh, meantime, okay. we're going to take a look at meme stocks. Stocks, excuse me. We are seeing another surge for AMC this morning that has us actually thinking about a moon landing. Check this out. It is closing in on being up nearly 150% in just the last week on pace to pass the record volume it recorded at the height of the meme trade in January with roughly 220 million shares having already been traded just this morning. Dom Chu did some math for us earlier and counting the outstanding shares and yesterday's staggering volume. The entire company has fully changed hands twice in just the last two trading days. Guys, it feels like deja vu all over again. We watched this happen with GME and not to the same extent AMC a few months ago. But there is some debate, Carl, over who's actually doing the selling. Um, a lot of folks seem to think that it's institutional investors and this short squeeze. But uh, Rich Greenfield was on this morning's Swap Box, and I heard him talking about the retail investors. He thinks that it's them selling to each other despite the common line we hear to hold no matter what. 
Yep. Um, a four-day surge, as we pointed out, and the, the short-selling loss is now $1.3 billion, uh, up more than 200% for the week, John. Although, uh, you know, it's, it's not a big move uh, today from the opening price. <laughs> so although it's had a heck of a few days, um, it's, it's to be determined whether or not uh, – buyers could revert quickly to a sell the move, a sell the sell the increase kind of mentality. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen that these meme stock trades can move very quickly. I mean, uh, investors, it's a tough job, right? You got to know what to buy, when to buy and when to sell. Uh, we'll see if people are taking the diamond hands mentality with this or they have a plan to sell portions of it uh, at certain points because, you know, what, what looks like a gain today uh, could turn into a loss tomorrow. You never know, Carl. Yeah. Uh, quickly, guys, uh, Apple is another story. Rare downgrade to sell, as we pointed out at the open. Uh, over at New Street, they go to a $90 target. Our friend uh, Pierre Fergu says the monster demand on the iPhone just cannot be secular. And you got to brace for a down cycle, uh, says the iPhone 12S is likely to suffer from what he says is limited innovation. That call is about $30 from where we are right now. You can catch the analysts behind the call, by the way, later on the exchange, 1 p.m. Eastern Time D. We talked about this with David and Kramer in the 9 a.m. It has some echoes of what Bernstein has said. Tony Saganaki has talked about the 12 having similarities to the 6 cycle where you had a very big uptrend mm -hmm. and then had to take a breather, more or less. Yeah, so the argument rests around whether demand is sustainable for the 12. But I remember last quarter, Don, remember we talked and we all had different opinions on what the greatest strength was. The Apple story has become so much more than the iPhone. It's become services. It's become the M1 chip. It's become iPads. And the return to work, is it going to be a hybrid model? So does demand for other devices be sustained. What do you think of that, John? Do you think that this all sort of rests on the iPhone 12 or is there enough that Apple is doing on the overall platform that could make up for perhaps a decline in demand? Well, I think the question for investors around this call is, do you believe that Apple trades on iPhone trends alone? And I would say it doesn't. That's not to say Pierre is wrong. We will see. But Apple doesn't just trend on whether or not trade on whether or not we are in a super cycle. I remember when Apple stopped reporting iPhone units and it was kind of like, oh, well, this is a sign that overall growth is slowing down. And it was. But at the same time, they were building out the services story and the street really latched onto that. Plus, they've got an ecosystem of vertical integration, making their own chips, certainly for mobile, now for Macs as well. And that appears to be working. So do you want to bet against that entire ecosystem, including retail, including wearables, where they are running away from uh, Google and Samsung? We saw them try to respond to that earlier this month. I mean, we'll see what the stock trades are. Pierre could be right about the iPhone and wrong about the stock. Well, one more thing, uh, Microsoft warning of a new hack reportedly by the same group that's behind SolarWinds. Eamon Jabbers breaks that down for us. Eamon? It's the Russians again, John, and that's what Microsoft all but said yesterday by tagging that group that was behind the SolarWinds attack. Uh, they put this report out last night. Here's what we know so far. It's an email-based attack. About 3,000 email accounts have been targeted at 150-plus groups, says Microsoft. Uh, it uses USAID. That's the U.S. Uh, foreign Investment Foreign Relief uh, Agency to send phishing emails. Uh, they're attacking government groups, NGOs, think tanks. 
banks, military organizations, and others, including uh, telecoms uh, and defense sector companies. Uh, Microsoft says this is an active incident which is still going on right now. That's why they're alerting the world to it. And take a look at this. This is a copy of the actual email that some of the recipients have apparently received. It looks like it's coming from USAID. And look what it says. It says, USAID special alert. Donald Trump has published new documents on election fraud. So that's going out this week. You wonder why is USAID sending anything about Donald Trump and election fraud? It's the group that's going to receive that is going to likely be curious. Why the heck am I getting an email like that from USAID? And maybe they click on that button there and then the Russians are off to the races. So that's how they lure you in in a phishing email, something that provokes your curiosity to the point at which you can't resist just clicking on that in order to see what it's all about. And then once you do, the Russians have you, they're in your systems. Uh, and that's what Microsoft is warning people about, particularly, you know, IT, telecom, defense contractors, all those folks, the foreign policy intelligentsia. That's who seems to be targeted here, John. Uh, well, Eamon, Eamon, is it true that? Go ahead, John. Well, Eamon, there's a certain element. There's almost a, an art behind how uh, you know scammers pick how they craft these emails. Um, you know, based on sometimes people's instinctual "I knew it" reaction, they'll click on something even if they realize a split second later that they shouldn't have. Is this playing off of perhaps some of the paranoia? And conspiracy theories in our in our politics, you think, where they're seeing, yeah, there are some people who are just yeah. clicking on this stuff that comes across the transom. It's social engineering, and your point is a really good one, right? Which is that you know this email, if you put it back up on the screen, it, it looks like transparent BS, right? Because USAID would not be sending anything out about Donald Trump and documents on election fraud under the Biden administration. That's just nonsense, right? So some people, to your point, John, might say hey, I know that's nonsense. I'm going to click on here. And just to, almost out of a sense of proving yourself right, you can kind of click on it just to get that satisfaction of realizing that it's nonsense. But then once you take that bait, that temptation, uh, you're in, or the, and the Russians are in, and that's the problem. Eamon, when did Microsoft learn of this attack? Is there a sense that companies and federal agencies are quicker to respond and to share information? Or is that sort of part of the story as well? Well, they say they first observed this going back to January, I believe, in the alert. Um, but they're alerting the public as of last night. So we're going to have to get some more detail from Microsoft on, you know, what happened between January and now in terms of this attack. It looks like what's happened is it's metastasized. It's gotten a lot bigger and going after a lot more people. And so therefore, you can presume that's why Microsoft decided they had to alert the world that this is happening. So if people see these emails coming in. They know to stop them. They say that some of them did get st get stopped by spam filters and other security devices. But apparently some have gotten through uh, and that's causing some problems now. You know, Eamon, it's interesting, sort of, as you say, the behavioral effects of all of this. A quarter of the targeted organizations were in areas of humanitarian work, uh, human rights work. It's, it's clear that whoever's behind it is looking for areas, uh, the few remaining areas, I guess, where Americans have trust. Yeah, absolutely. And the New York Times is reporting there's a nexus here to Vladimir Putin, that the common theme seems to be uh, looking for entities that have criticized Putin. Uh, so you can see what the motivation is right away on the on the Russian side of the ledger here. 
and this has become an element of statecraft, right? I mean, there's the criminal organizations that we talk about so much in ransomware, and then there's the nation-state hacking, which is gathering intelligence. Uh, that has happened, you know, since time immemorial. Uh, but what's going on here is spying on a scale that you just couldn't have imagined before you had this this cyber hacking capability. You know, breaking in and stealing documents from a, a nonprofit would have been an epic feat in the 1970s. Today, you send out 3,000 emails and, and back come the documents, and it's all done, you know, before lunchtime. Right. Uh, it is harrowing, uh, Eamon, and it's interesting that we have at least the knowledge, the information that we do uh, from Microsoft and from you. Uh, that's Eamon Javers. We'll take a break here. We'll talk to the CEO of Autodesk later on. We'll talk about the legacy of the Apple Store a couple decades in and Amazon's Amazon booths. We're just getting started on Tech Check. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Get a gut check on Lordstown Motors. Uh, Deutsche initiates as a hold price target of $8. They say the opportunity in EVs and trucking is there, but also, quote, difficult to acquire uh, much conviction about the company's ability to execute and ultimately succeed. John, I think eight is also Jonas's target over at Morgan Stanley. It's not as low as the $1 target over at Wolf when they downgraded earlier in the month. Yeah, yeah. I mean, being the next Tesla is tough. Being the first Tesla was tough. We'll see, we'll see if anybody can do it. Meanwhile, software company Autodesk reporting strong results, raising guidance, picking up the M&A momentum. Joining us now to talk about the business and outlook, Autodesk CEO Andrew Ananost. Uh, Andrew, good to have you. Um, good to I, see I you again, like, I like good to see you. Talking to you because so much of what Autodesk does is uh, your customers are planning the future. If they've got big plans to build buildings, to design products, things like that, we see it showing up in your results. And you say you've hit an inflection point. What does that mean for resumption of uh, economic activity coming out of this pandemic? Yeah, it's, you know, as you know, our, our customers cover a large sector of the economy. And what we've seen is monthly active use of our products, which is a, an indicator of activity for planning to build, actually building, planning to manufacturing. It's gone up to pre-COVID levels in just about every country in the world, except the United States, by the way. Uh, it's, still, it's still just under uh, pre-COVID-19 levels, but trending right up. So this says for, for us, the economic cycle in the industries we serve has bottomed up and is moving in the other, bottomed out and is moving in the other direction, which I think is a positive sign for other aspects of the economy as well. Yeah, so we talked to Intuit earlier this week, really talking about small and medium business, that momentum that they're seeing there in digitizing, even if on a secular level, 
they're not uh, recovering as quickly as many would like. How does that relate to what you're seeing with your customer base, even in the U.S.? Is there a move toward more digital processes, perhaps getting deeper into your product portfolio, even as they haven't perhaps returned to pre-COVID levels? Yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, John, it started during the pandemic. Everybody started to realize that their processes were too fragile, their supply chain engagement was, was too, too fragile, and they started moving to digital tools. That's only accelerating. In fact, you know, especially in the construction industry, look, it's, it's too wasteful, things cost too much, there's not enough sustainability built into how they work. They're, they're waking up to the fact that we have to do this digitally. We have to industrialize. We have to look more like our, our product manufacturing counterparts out there and stop being kind of the wasteful ad hoc industry that we've been. And that's driving a lot of interest in digital tools. Andrew, good morning. It's Deirdre. So more is being done digitally. And I know that Autodesk is pushing deeper into infrastructure projects. So I wonder how cybersecurity plays into this, into your business on the infrastructure side, the supply chain side. Are you spending more time on it? Are you hiring more, thinking more as we get increasing attacks and the prospects of more as well? Absolutely. Cybersecurity is on everyone's mind. We we invest more in it every year to ensure that our systems are secure. But I remember what, what you just highlighted in the last report, they go after the, the most vulnerable aspect of, of the whole entire system, the soft part, the human. And that requires us to all be vigilant. The systems are getting more and more secure. Our ability to detect is getting more and more robust. But people are still the weak link in our cybersecurity processes, and we all have to pay attention to that. And finally, Andrew, I wonder, I mean, this is a, a bit of a shot in the dark, but I, I wonder, is there any relationship, do you think, between the degree to which we return to a physical office and billings? Is there any marginal tailwind for, for, for billings when you work remote? Uh, no, no, you mean billings in our industry? Or, or billings in general? I'm sorry, did, did you ask a question there? Yeah, for no, the I was asking, are you, talking about bill, are you talking about billings in, in our industry for what, what our customers do and, and, their, and their billings? Or are you, are you talking about Autodesk? Yes. I, I, I didn't quite, okay, good. I just didn't quite understand your question. Look, you know, the, the project activity goes in different directions. People ask this a lot. If, you're, if, if commercial space is gonna get use, less utilized, are you gonna build less com, uh, commercial space? Are people going to be uh, reconfiguring less commercial space? The truth of the matter is, is everybody's reconfiguring their commercial space right now to be less dense and more collaborative. And rents are going down in subletted spaces and new companies are moving in and reconfiguring those spaces to be less dense. Uh, new construction is happening in suburban areas as, as people start looking at office parks in suburban areas, multifamily housing. Uh, projects move to hospitals. So we are not seeing anything in our industry that looks like a slowing down in billings for our customers related to the return of work. In fact, there's just another book of business. The money shifts to other types of activities. All right. Well, the truth is in the data. Andrew Ananos uh, from Autodesk. Thank you. Thank you. Meantime, guys, two big debuts pacing a big weekend for the box office as streaming questions linger on performance. And Julia, it's a good question as we see AMC continue this wild rally this week. <laughs> 
That's a, absolutely right, Deirdre. Now, Memorial Day weekend opens the summer box office with two big films, and it's a big test for movie going now that more than 70% of theaters are open. And it's also a key test of new distribution models and the end of that set 90-day window between when films were released in theaters and when they were available at home. Audience reactions to these new options will impact studios as well as theater chains. As you mentioned, AMC, that stock skyrocketing as the meme, tra meme trade has returned. Now, one of the two films is Paramount's A Quiet Place 2. It's already grossed $5 million from Thursday night screenings, and it's expected to collect as much as $40 million in domestic ticket sales through Monday. Now, the film will be exclusively in theaters for 45 days before it's streamed to Paramount Plus subscribers. That shortened exclusive theatrical window prompted filmmakers John Krasinski and Emily Blunt to push Paramount for higher compensation. That's because they earn a percentage of the box office. But sources tell me Paramount countered that the vast majority of box office revenue is collected well before 45 days. In fact, Comscore tells us that nearly 90% of ticket sales for the first Quiet Place movie were in the first 45 days. The other big film hitting theaters is Disney's Cruella this weekend, but they're taking a different approach. They're simultaneously offering it to Disney Plus subscribers for an additional $30 fee. So it's unclear how that will impact its box office take. Now, Hollywood is also closely watching the international box office, which pre-pandemic was increasingly important to studios' bottom lines. Last weekend, Universal's F9 brought in over $160 million from eight international markets, with nearly 85% of that revenue coming from China. MKM's Eric Handler tells us those numbers make evident the post-pandemic potential for Hollywood content and guys' potentials not just here, but also internationally, Deirdre. Yeah, Julie, it's fascinating to see how this will all play out as sort of the different studios take different approaches to this. Thanks for bringing that to us and we'll see what happens after this weekend. Still to come here on Tech Check, John says this is the second most important thing out of Apple. After the iPhone, we will discuss and probably debate the legacy of the Apple Store 20 years in. That's next. And later, exclusive sound from Boxio, Aaron Levy, as he responds to activist pressure from Starboard. Tech Check is back in just three minutes. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Resetting near the bottom of the hour here on Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Coming up this half hour, uh, the historic legacy of the Apple Store on retail. We'll get to that. But first, let's get a news update. Turn to Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Boeing has temporarily stopped deliveries of its 787 Dreamliners. The FAA says that it's still waiting for information from the company, showing inspection changes meet federal safety standards. Boeing shares are down a little more than 1.5% right now. A key gauge of business activity in the Midwest has jumped to its highest level since 1973. Despite ongoing supply constraints, the Chicago PMI soared to 75.2 in May. Any reading above 50 indicates growth. A closely watched inflation gauge posting its largest annual gain in nearly 30 years. The core PCE price index up 3.1% since last April. 
The monthly gain of 0.7% was only slightly above expectations. And France has slipped into recession. First quarter GDP growth was revised to a small loss. That's thanks to weakness in the construction sector. And the second quarter may be off to a weak start. Household spending fell more than 8% in April. But, uh, John, quite a different story here in the States as far as uh, home spending. I'll send it back to you. Yes, indeed. Rahel, thank you. Uh, speaking of spending, Apple continuing to expand its retail footprint, opening its newest store on the historic Via del Corso in Rome yesterday. That latest outpost comes nearly 20 years to the day after the first store opened in the Tyson's Corner Mall in McLean, Virginia, outside D.C. I attended that store's grand opening on May 19, 2001. The unique interactive layout designed to fuel Steve Jobs' Switch campaign, getting PC users to jump to Macs. Also happened to boost sales of the iPod, which no one outside Apple knew about yet. That wouldn't launch until five months later. Now, in 2002, Apple made another extraordinary step, moving stores out of malls into iconic locations, taking over a former post office in Soho in New York City. That expansive two-store flagship Genius Bar on the second floor cemented the tech giant's retail dominance, paved the way for Fifth Avenue, Grand Central, the Louvre, so many other Apple stores. By 2017, Apple's retail sales per square foot had vaulted to a retail industry high, nearly twice its closest competitor. Now, these stores were seen as a crazy gambit at the time. A lot of people forget Gateway had just failed with its stores months earlier. We saw a big earnings miss from them, the CEO returning. It seemed like to many, Apple was following a failed blueprint, but no, it was a different blueprint. And now other giants are following suit. Google opening its first permanent store in New York City this summer. Amazon, of course, has all kinds of stores pushing on the same kind of omni-channel storyline that Apple has been creating for a long time. Now, this retail innovation from Apple has given the tech giant protection against downside from particular down cycles or product blips, which brings us to today's news. New Street Research downgrading Apple to sell with a new price target of $90. They expect iPhone demand to slump as consumers eye non-electronics post-pandemic. But Carl, as I mentioned earlier, you gotta be careful with Apple because it doesn't just trade on the iPhone and whether you're talking about chip vertical integration, their own design now across so many products, whether you're talking about the App Store services, subscriptions, and that big cash hoard, stores like this, they have a lot of ways to pull customers in, didn't even mention wearables, pull customers in and keep them in the ecosystem. Yeah, no, there's a piece out today, John, about uh, wearables at Apple, how they have probably about a 10-year head start, uh, which is interesting for a company, D, that has historically preferred a second strike advantage. I'm thinking of John's piece and also thinking of the Genius Bar and how genius it is <laughs> to have to go to a place to get your uh, equipment repaired. And while you're waiting, you check out the items on display. You see the graphics that are maybe better than the item you have, and that drives purchase intention. Yep, I know. My mom loves the Genius Bar whenever she can get in. And I'm not going to argue with the success, the incredible success that Apple's retail story has been over the last two decades. But, John, I don't know. I take issue looking forward. What is the plan? I mean, many Apple stores in target locations. It seems to go against everything that made this such a successful bet in the first place going directly to the customer, making it a destination, uh, employees as brand ambassadors. Do we think that now that 
Angela Arendt has left the position and Deirdre O'Brien has gone in that she can navigate sort of the next phase of Apple's retail story where perhaps VR and services need to play a bigger part. I'm confused by this target move. No, absolutely. I, I think I mean, you got to remember Ron Johnson launched this idea within Apple and the first move, Carl, that Apple made for an executive to replace him, John Browett, that didn't that didn't work. That was one of Tim Cook's biggest management failures of his tenure. Didn't last a year. Then he got in Angela Arendt, and now they figured out what this is all about. More than half of Apple's employees now work in retail. It's a part of uh, the engine here and a part of the ecosystem. And now they're an economic driver. Cities compete. They want Apple stores because they draw tourists, clouds. They're an economic engine for the things around them. Kind of flip this idea of a mall anchor tenant into a new era where now you have anchor tenants for cities, for city blocks, for city areas, Carl, and, and Apple has managed to do that. Yes, and we'll see if maybe Google can do that in San Jose or Microsoft or, or even New York City. We're, we're going we're gonna to check that out. It's a great piece, John. Uh, keep your eye on Salesforce today. A big beat on the top and the bottom line. Revenue up 27. Some granularity on Slack. Watch Jim's full interview with Benioff on Mad last night only on CNBC.com. In the meantime, Box CEO Aaron Levy and his response to Starboard. That's coming up next. There's a lot more tech check ahead after this quick break. Box CEO Aaron Levy responding to activism over at Starbird. Our Josh Lipton spoke to him late last night and has more. Hey, Josh. So, Carl, Box just reporting earnings results, but the real drama for the cloud software vendor right now is this fight with Starboard Value. That brawl going red hot. Starboard nominating its own candidates to the board ahead of Box's annual shareholder meeting, pitting its candidates against CEO Aaron Levy and two other directors seeking re-election. Starboard pointing to what it calls Box's poor results and subpar shareholder returns. Aaron Levy, though, hitting right back. We're very aligned um, that the strategy is to really drive greater growth and profitability. Uh, and, uh, and I think when you look at our share price returns, um, as a result of that strategy being executed, I think it's, um, it's pretty clear you know, that that, is, uh, that that strategy is working at this point. Now, another key area of contention, an announcement in April that KKR would buy $500 million worth of boxes stock. Starboard not happy, saying this was done to buy the vote ahead of this election contest. Aaron Levy, though, saying that isn't true. I think it, it would be hard to knock the credibility of KKR and uh, their their views of long-term uh, you know, profitable shareholder returns. So KKR uh, led an investment in the company. Company. We, uh, we're very confident that they are long-term believers in the business and the current plan that we have. Um, they have a very strong track record uh, driving significant shareholder returns for their investors. Now, some analysts I speak with, like JMP's Eric Supiger, think Box could still be an attractive acquisition target for the right suitor. Maybe IBM, Eric says, or even Cisco. Levy says he will always consider the best path forward for his shareholders, but he's excited, he says, about the path Box is on right now. Back to you all. Josh, um, the, the chess matches here between companies and activists, always interesting to see which way they tack. I mean, some people might forget before Satya Nadella, they were activists after Microsoft. Um, it seems, seems funny now. But if you look at Box and Dropbox, both of them have kind of underperformed some of the broader cloud expectations. They both have market caps under 15 billion, for example. But I, I just wonder what, if anything, analysts are saying about the likelihood that you could totally reinvent a company like this under either activist 
or private equity watch uh, without founders. That, that doesn't seem likely either. Yeah, so to your point about um, share performance, listen, that is certainly something Starboard is bringing up here. Um, now, Aaron Levy is right. If you look this year, I think Box is up 20, 25 percent in the past three months. But if you pull back the chart, you know, 2020 was a different story. Certainly, it finished up 7 percent. That underperformed uh, some cloud rivals, obviously, but also underperformed the market. Um, after your question, John, about what Starboard wants here, you know, there are some folks who still think um, Box is an acquisition target. I was talking to one analyst last night who thought some of the more muted reaction, perhaps, in, in response to this print was because, well, if it, to the extent that Box keeps hitting its targets, maybe it mutes the idea that Starboard is actually going to win this thing, get its own candidates on the board, and push for a sale. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, fascinating to watch the interplay between activists these days and CEO Josh. That's good stuff, uh, Josh Lipton. By the way, Kathy Wood is not concerned about ESG fears impacting the future of crypto. We're going to explain on the other side of this break. Plus, watch AMD. Benchmark calls it a buy, says shares are trading at a level that presents opportunity. You can read the call and others like it only on CNBC.com slash pro. We're back in two minutes. We thought we're teeing up the institutional world uh, for some real participation in this space. Uh, we think some of that has gone on pause, uh, but we think uh, half of the solution is understanding the problem. And I think that uh, this auditing of that miners, certainly in North America, are willing to do uh, around how much of uh, their electricity usage is generated by renewables is going to uh, bring that topic into stark relief uh, and will encourage, we believe, an acceleration in the adoption of renewables beyond which otherwise would have taken the place. That's ARC's uh, Kathy Wood at the Coindesk uh, consensus conference earlier in the week talking about the recent institutional adoption of crypto and the subsequent fall off. In addition to waving off some of those ESG fears for the space, she told investors uh, not to fear regulatory scrutiny, saying that Bitcoin is, quote, already on its way and impossible to shut down. Those comments, though, not helping necessarily. Still on pace to end the week uh, below 40K, uh, trying to hold just below 37K right now, guys. Plus, yesterday, D, you had uh, David Solomon of Goldman Sachs say he's extremely cautious and buyer beware. And then you had Kuroda of Japan saying at this point it's barely used as a means of settlement. Right. And you've had all the comments from China over the last few weeks. However, I do see Kathy Wood's point in that the more regulation is probably beneficial. I guess my key question, John, especially over the last few months is, and as we hear Bitcoin be called by some of the newer generation investors, boomer, boomer coin, how do we know <laughs> that this isn't going to look like our grandpa's cryptocurrency a few years from now, right? You can bet on the technology. That seems to be pretty safe. The technology in some form is going to last. However, how do we know that it's going to be Bitcoin and not Ether, which has seen huge gains this year and surpassed in terms of this year, surpassing Bitcoin's gains? Yeah, I think we've got to be careful about the boomer talk when we're talking about money. Boomers got a lot of money. You know, you could call the dollar boomer coin and <laughs> the dollar is pretty, it's pretty nice to have a lot of dollars in the world still, despite all the things that other people are chasing. Its success or failure tends to be measured in dollars. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of coins out there. But, but Kathy Wood's point on uh, the uh, ecological impacts and the financial incentive toward greener mining, especially when you have these councils forming, that makes a lot of sense 
to me, Carl. I mean, uh, I think you, when you see economic incentives pointing in the right directions, you, you tend to see systems, coalitions, best practices, Deirdre, building around that. I'm still wondering, John, if you call Bitcoin boomer coin, what would that make the U.S. dollar? I think you'd have to call it like the seniors coin or or the century coin or something like that. Um, anyways, guys, how would you feel about being able to pay to control parts of another person's life? Well, if you have the appetite for it, a new app is offering you the chance to do just that. Take a look. Nowadays, there's an app for almost everything from controlling the lights in your home to the locks on your doors, hailing a ride or ordering takeout. But what about an app that lets you pay to control someone else's life? Well, there's an app for that too. And new new is that new kid on the block. The Control My Life app is still in beta and launched just two months ago. It was created by LA-based entrepreneur Courtney Smith and is described as a human stock market where you buy shares in the lives of real people in order to control their decisions and watch the outcome. It's some things that I feel like, oh, I am maybe 50-50 on. It's really nice to open it up to a second opinion, a third opinion, and then have their voices make a difference and choose for me. Now, whether new new will grow old with users is yet to be seen, but for indecisive folks everywhere, this app might just be the easiest decision they've ever made. <laughs> now, if you've been watching the show, you, we know you have a thing for QR codes. Take out your phone, scan this code, it'll take you to our website where you can watch the full piece and much more original digital content, cnbc.com slash tech check. John, I just had an idea. What if we put the show on this app and we had, you know, the audience control every <laughs> little move that we did? Would that be interesting or would that be a little scary? I well, think our producers Twitter, are probably on Twitter. A lot uh, of people are trying. Day. Yeah, on Twitter, a lot of people are trying. I don't know if that'll <laughs> work, but love the piece, Deirdre. Paying to control someone else's life. When I was a teenager, I called that parenting. I don't know. Do we? Well, all right, great piece. <laughs> Two earnings movers to mention as we head to break. First, HP beaten a raise of its guidance, not enough to keep shares in the green. You can see down there, 8.5%. That following warnings on more impact from the chip shortage. Dell, similar story. Chip shortage worries overshadowing a quarter that saw another beat on the top and bottom. Strong demand in desktop PCs and notebooks. You see Dell down nearly 2%. More on those movers on CNBC.com. We're back in a moment. Shares of AMC are well off the highs of the day, but that's not much consolation to short sellers. Kate Rooney has more on that. Hey, Kate. Hey, Carl. Yeah, it's not a great week to be betting against AMC or a lot of these meme stocks as they rebound here. We've got some new updated stats on just how much traders betting against AMC, GameStop and Virgin Galactic have lost this week. The total, it's now $2.8 billion in just the four days, the past four days. And yesterday alone, they lost just under a billion dollars. That's for AMC, GameStop, and Virgin Galactic, which are among the most shorted names. That's according to data firm Ortex. And we'll pull out AMC numbers specifically. Take a look here. That stock surge has resulted in $1.3 billion in losses for the shorts there. That's according to data from S3. And short selling guys may be part of what's really driving this rally. If traders are trying to close out their positions, they might need to buy back those shares causing additional demand and boosting those prices. AMC stock has more than doubled this week. And according to S3, about 20% of its shares uh, are sold short. That's about four times the average for the typical U.S. stock. 
It's also heavily traded, at least it was yesterday. It was the most active stock on the New York Stock Exchange with nearly 700 million shares trading hands. That's about seven times its 30-day average. Meanwhile, mentions of AMC on Twitter, Reddit, we're seeing it everywhere. Those are on the rise. A couple of hashtags to bring you this morning. Hashtag AMC squeeze and AMC strong are both trending this morning. Back to you guys. <laughs> we have to pay attention to that stuff now, Kate. It's crazy. Uh, Kate Rooney, thanks. We'll take a break here. When we come back, who needs a bathroom when you can have a Zen booth? The new installations inside Amazon's warehouses when we're back after one more quick break. Reaching Amazon, the tech giant introducing mindful practice rooms as part of the company's new Working Well program it announced last week. The program is a mix of activities and exercises to help employees recharge and re-energize. The effort comes as we've seen power struggles over the warehouse workforce. Two leaders of a failed union drive in Alabama backing shareholder proposals to push the company to conduct a diversity audit and consider workers for board seats during Amazon's annual meeting this past Wednesday. In the vote, shareholders rejected both proposals, just like the union. Carl. Guys, I'm going to defer to D on that. I guess it reflects uh, on the margin, D, uh, a changing face of, of you know, labor relations at Amazon. It does. They played a much bigger theme this shareholder meeting than in the past, along with a few other issues like anti-competition. Yeah. Uh, guys, uh, what a week. We packed a lot in. Uh, we hope you all have a long and enjoyable Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you Tuesday. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.